Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. Must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, August 2nd, 2022, the 559th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release, or hey, maybe early on the morning after. But if you're doing that, it's because you are a paid subscriber on the Substack. I'm your moderator substack.com. That is the only way to listen to the show on the day of the release. And it's going to blast you right through the paywall for whenever I put up writing and you'll be helping me and supporting the show. So if you want to do that and you can do that, that's how to do that. Otherwise, go ahead and listen to it for free whenever you feel like it. I'm not trying to make it a big thing, but I spend a lot of time on this and I work pretty hard on it. And if people like it, eh. Paying a quarter per episode is probably better than listening to a bunch of commercials. And it means I don't have to censor myself like so many of the people who have wimped out in the last two years. Okay, so I've been talking about a lot of more abstract stuff recently. I want to try to use this episode to catch people up on a bunch of things. There's a lot going on in the world. We got primaries in a slew of states today. Probably going to talk about that a bunch tomorrow. And of course, the primary elections being held today are already a mess. 
with maladministration and certainly fraud following right along behind that. We'll see how it goes. Nancy Pelosi has arrived in Taiwan. We're going to talk a bunch about that. But first, I want to talk about Joe Biden flexing his COVID riddled muscles last night in announcing that the CIA under Joe Biden's direction, the very, very strong leader that Joe Biden is, the very, very powerful fake commander in chief at his direction, the CIA executed a drone strike. And Joe Biden is now claiming that in that drone strike, the second in command under bin Laden from a long time ago of Al Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri, has been killed. And there are some problems with that story that go beyond Joe Biden's almost total inability to read out his victory speech from a massive teleprompter about four feet away. Think about whatever it means to you for someone to look and sound and act presidential and then understand that Joe Biden's speech was none of those things. But hey, you got to remember the adults are back in the room. And yeah, Afghanistan withdrawal, complete and total disaster. Ukraine, Russia, everybody would have been better off if Joe Biden had nothing to do with the situation. In fact, the situation probably wouldn't have started if we didn't have a fake president who was one of the weakest, quote unquote, world leaders history has ever seen. And is it worth mentioning that the fake commander in chief is overseeing an invasion into our country through the southern border and doing nothing to stop it? In fact, helping it hand in hand with the cartels? Well, I guess it is worth mentioning because I already mentioned it. But forget about all of that. Here's the fake president. My fellow Americans, on Saturday, at my direction, the United States successfully concluded an airstrike in Kabul, Afghanistan, that killed the Emir of Al-Qaeda, Iman al-Zawiri. You know, Zawiri was uh, bin Laden's leader. He was with him all the, the whole time. He was his number two man, his deputy at the time the terrorist attacked 9-11. He was deeply involved in the planning of 9-11, one of the most responsible for the attacks that murdered 2,977 people on American soil. For decades, he was the mastermind behind attacks against Americans, including the bombing of the USS Cole in 2000, which killed 17 American sailors and wounded dozens more. He played a key role, a key role in the bombing of U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, killing 224 and wounding over 4,500 others. He carved a trail of murder and violence against American citizens, American service members, American diplomats, and American interests. And since the United States delivered justice to bin Laden 11 years ago, Zawahiri has been a leader of al-Qaeda, the leader. From hiding, he coordinated al-Qaeda's branches and all around the world, including setting priorities for providing operational guidance that called for and inspired attacks against U.S. targets. He made videos, including the recent weeks, calling for his followers to attack the United States and our allies. Now, 
justice has been delivered, and this terrorist leader is no more. People around the world no longer need to fear the vicious and determined killer. The United States continues to demonstrate our resolve and our capacity to defend the American people against those who seek to do us harm. Okay, so bin Laden was very bad and al-Zawahiri took over for him and inspired plans for attacks and also made videos. And now this vicious killer has been dealt justice at the hands of Joe Biden. Joe Biden, terrorist killer, always. I mean, he was there in the room when they went after bin Laden. And that's why he's spending so much time talking about bin Laden and Al Qaeda. He's got to remind everybody of the threat and his role. He was, after all, the vice president under Barack Obama. And Barack Obama was definitely the man responsible for taking down bin Laden. Here's Joe Biden talking about that back when it happened. This is from the Washington Post. They wrote. He was clearly trying to make Obama look like a gutsy decision maker in the face of antsy aides. And so this is Joe Biden quoted in The Washington Post. The president, he went around the table with all the senior people, including the chiefs of staff. And he said, I have to make a decision. What is your opinion? He started with the national security advisor, the secretary of state, and he ended with me, Biden said. Every single person in that room hedged their bet, except Leon Panetta. Leon said, go. Everyone else said, 49, 51. He got to me. He said, Joe, what do you think? And I said, you know, I didn't know we had so many economists around the table. (laughs) I said, we owe the man a direct answer. Mr. President, my suggestion is don't go. We'll have to do two more things to see if he's there. So Joe Biden was very put off by the fact that Barack Obama's senior officials couldn't actually make a decision. They were waffling about a very important decision. Is this the time to pretend to take out Osama bin Laden or not? And you owe the president a direct answer. So the best thing to do is stand up and make the wrong answer. Congratulations, Joe Biden. Very strong, very brave. But hey, he's had COVID for two weeks. Everybody with eyes can see that he is by far the worst world leader of all time. And that's even despite his illegitimacy. So he needs a solution. And what solution is he going to choose? Who knows? He probably said, come on, man. You know the thing. And the CIA was like, yeah, we know the thing. We're going to launch a drone strike somewhere. And then you can tell them this terrorist is dead. Now, the only problem is Ayman al-Zawahiri has been pronounced dead multiple times over the last few years, including from natural causes related to asthma. But that's not the only problem with this story. This is the Daily Mail this morning. White House confirms it does not have DNA confirmation of al-Zawahiri's death and got it through other sources as questions swirl over whether U.S. had any foreign help. 
The White House revealed on Tuesday morning that it does not have DNA proof that Al Qaeda chief Ayman al-Zawahiri was killed in a drone strike in Kabul on Sunday. Instead, spokesman John Kirby said officials used multiple sources and pieces of evidence to establish that Osama bin Laden's successor was dead. It comes as officials are under pressure to release more details about the strike, including where the U.S. drones flew and any foreign assistance they had in taking out one of the world's most wanted men. Kirby, National Security Council coordinator for strategic communications, declined to discuss whether the CIA carried out the strike or whether Hellfire R9X missiles fitted with blades were used. And although he said the strike sent a message that Al Qaeda leaders would never be safe anywhere, you know, after 10 years or so. <laughs> oh, man. It's amazing. It really is amazing. We will chase you to the ends of the earth when we get around to it. We do not have DNA confirmation. We're not going to get that confirmation, he told CNN. Quite frankly, based on multiple sources and methods that we've gathered information from, we don't need it. Hey, man, what are the sources and methods? Did you just read the articles from a few years ago that said he was already dead? Is that your confirmation? Announcing the strike a day earlier, President Joe Biden said he hoped that Al-Zawahiri's death would bring one more measure of closure to families of the victims of the 9-11 attacks, which he helped coordinate. And that actually sounds like they're saying that Joe Biden helped coordinate the attacks. And hey, you know, maybe he did. Kirby, who made rounds of morning TV shows, said the strike showed that the U.S. had established an ability to kill terrorists in Afghanistan. One, it tells you we can do exactly what we said we were going to do a year ago. Over-the-horizon counterterrorism capability is possible, he told MSNBC's Morning Joe. In fact, it can be very effective, and we've seen that just over the course of this weekend. And if I'm an al-Qaeda leader in Afghanistan right now, I'm thinking that it's not quite the safe haven I once thought it was. So you see that? They never messed up in Afghanistan at all. They have turned that frown upside down. And now you can't talk about the Afghanistan debacle anymore. Afghanistan is now a victory. I mean, this potential death of a man who may have still been alive combined with evacuating well over 100,000 people to who knows where in the world means that the Afghanistan withdrawal was actually a huge success. Yes, 13 U.S. servicemen were killed senselessly because of the incompetence of the administration. And yes, they did launch a drone strike that killed a family, an entire family, while calling them terrorists and then admitting they weren't. But huge success. But it's important to exhibit strength in times like these, especially when you get COVID again after just having COVID, after getting four shots and then taking Paxlovid. Damn, man, I sound like a rapper. That was tight. And Joe Biden knows how to sound strong because he's taken the lead from former presidents in 
situations like this. And am I talking about Barack Obama when he says he got Osama bin Laden? Of course not. Here's Joe Biden giving his uh, MAGA speech. The United States did not seek this war against terror. It came to us. We answered with the same principles and resolve that have shaped us for a generation upon generation to protect the innocent, defend liberty, and we keep the light of freedom burning, a beacon for the rest of the entire world, because this is a great and defining truth about our nation and our people. We do not break. We never give in. We never back down. Genuinely just ripped off Trump's speech. But also, hey, Joe, the United States kind of did seek the war on terror. We're all old enough to remember weapons of mass destruction and yellow cake uranium and Saddam Hussein is aiding Al Qaeda. But enough of this clown show. Let's set some of the narrative pieces that will guide us through our interpretation of the China and Taiwan situation over the coming weeks. It's good to start with establishment opinion, get the story they're trying to tell so we know where that story fails. This is from Philip Wegman in Real Clear Politics. Pelosi's Asia trip exposes divides in both parties over Taiwan. Before the government jet that would fly House Speaker Pelosi to Asia was fueled or even taxiing on the tarmac Friday, Donald Trump slammed a planned stop in Taiwan as an extraordinarily bad idea. She will only make it worse, asserted the former president. But Herschel Walker, the one-time football star running for a Senate seat with Trump's endorsement, cheered the speaker on. Not only should Pelosi fly to the island nation to, quote, send a signal that we are going to stand up to the Chinese, Walker said, but he offered to come along for the trip, writing on Twitter, I'll take her to Taiwan myself and bragging, I know what it means to stand up to tough opponents. The novice Republican candidate, however, remains in Georgia while the speaker arrived in Singapore on Monday. Nothing has been announced officially yet. This is from this morning. But according to multiple reports, Pelosi and a congressional delegation are expected to arrive in Taiwan Tuesday and stay through Wednesday, despite various threats from China. Chinese President Xi Jinping warned President Biden in a call last week not to deviate from Beijing's script regarding the so-called One China principle. Those who play with fire will perish by it, she vowed. A spokesman for the Chinese foreign ministry added Monday that a visit would lead to, quote, very serious developments and consequences. The Chinese military later in the day posted a propaganda video of fighter jets scrambling and soldiers firing missiles. As the Taiwan trip lays bare some of the geopolitical tensions between China and the United States, it could also further illuminate evolving Republican Party ideas about foreign policy in the post-Trump era. You got that? We're fully in the post-Trump era. The previous administration was stacked with China hawks who wanted to see the power of that communist behemoth curbed. And isn't it kind of amazing that they set this up as it's just these some of these Trump people, these China hawks who would like to see the power of a communist behemoth curbed. That should be everybody, but it's not because so many of our politicians who are themselves sitting illegitimately in our government are totally sold out and totally bought up by the Chinese Communist Party. 
Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, for instance, during the final days of the Trump administration and to the ire of China, ended all self-imposed restrictions on how officials from the U.S. and Taiwan communicated. As Reuters reported, the Chinese government frowns on all such engagements and considers them tantamount to encouraging those in Taiwan who want to remain free from China. Its leaders have long considered Taiwan part of their country. And while the United States does not have official diplomatic ties with the island nation, the U.S. is required by law to see to it that Taiwan has the military means necessary to defend itself. Honoring that commitment has been a rare source of consensus on Capitol Hill. And it's worth noting that Mike Pompeo has traveled to Taiwan multiple times and does not deal with the same level of threat that Nancy Pelosi has seen in the run-up to this trip. Former House Speaker Newt Gingrich recently praised Pelosi's plan to visit Taiwan. She simply must go through with it, he wrote, before offering a little unsolicited advice. Take a strong bipartisan congressional delegation. For whatever reason, however, only Democrats made the flight. Yeah, wouldn't it be worth getting to the bottom of that reason, Phil? Not a single congressional Republican traveled with Speaker Pelosi on her Asia trip, which will presumably include a stop in Taiwan. Michael Sobolik, a fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council, told Real Clear Politics, adding that Trump's public opposition to the trip undoubtedly made it difficult for Republicans to join the delegation. I mean, after all, we're in a post-Trump era, which is what makes it so difficult for Republicans to do things that Trump wouldn't like. It's worth watching how other Senate candidates respond because it could signal how a new crop of GOP lawmakers would approach Taiwan policy and China policy more broadly, Sobolik added. It could also preview how Trump-backed candidates are thinking about America's role in the world. The GOP has always been generally pro-Taiwan. As Fox News reports, House Republicans are already preparing legislation to create a lend-lease military aid program to make Taiwan a harder target for a Chinese invasion. And yet, there are some voices on the right that increasingly subscribe to a more isolationist retrenchment agenda rather than a deterrent strategy. Representative Ted Budd, who is running for Senate in North Carolina with Trump's endorsement, told RCP, we should not allow Chinese threats to stop a member of Congress from visiting Taiwan. He accused the Biden administration of displaying weakness by reportedly trying to scuttle the trip. And Biden himself said very little on the proposed trip, but he said the military didn't want her to go. Apparently being unsure as the fake president, who it is that sets the military's agenda. Arizona Republican Blake Masters, another Trump-endorsed candidate, also focused his criticism on the administration, telling RCP that Biden had, quote, just ceded our foreign policy leadership to Nancy Pelosi. China is laughing about the weakness coming from the White House. Katie Britt, a Republican Senate nominee running with Trump's endorsement in Alabama, also turned the focus on Biden. Our adversaries across the world are watching us, she said Monday. The fact that he wouldn't stand with Speaker Pelosi and stand and be bullied by the Chinese Communist Party is a disgrace. It's despicable and unacceptable. But hey, he just may have killed a terrorist who may or may not have been dead for a few years already. 
Administration officials have said that the decision to visit Taiwan belongs to Pelosi and Pelosi alone. All along, they insist, they have just been respecting another co-equal branch of government, despite the fact that Biden seemed to throw cold water on the speaker's travel plans when he told reporters the military thinks it's not a good idea right now. And, you know, the fake administration, their policy is always to respect co-equal branches of government. That's why executive branch agencies like the Department of Justice never respond to congressional inquiries. And it's why Joe Biden and all the communists under his purview continue to argue that the Supreme Court should be expanded until we have a communist majority. And their new thing is imposing term limits on Supreme Court justices. They have an unbounded respect for the Constitution of the United States of America and for the co-equal branches of government. Of course, always. While the White House told reporters Monday that the proposed visit does not signal any change to U.S. policy, they also warned China against escalatory actions. There is no reason for Beijing to turn a potential visit consistent with longstanding U.S. policy into some sort of crisis or conflict, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said, or use it as a pretext to increase aggressive military activity in or around the Taiwan Strait. And I'm sure John Kirby commands great respect from the Chinese Communist Party. Kirby dismissed out of hand the suggestion that Biden had complicated things for Pelosi by previously suggesting that military brass didn't want the speaker to go, only for the White House to later rebuff China's saber rattling. I haven't seen any drama. I think you're manufacturing it with your question, he told RCP. Look, we have been nothing but clear with the Chinese about where we stand on the issues, the one China policy, our support for a free and open Indo-Pacific. The spokesman for the NSC later said in an interview with Fox News that the White House was not, quote, blaming this on the media or saying there's nothing to see. So very consistent. They want it both ways all the time. That way, no one can ever understand anything, especially where the White House stands, because they're not sure themselves. But if no one knows where they stand, it's much harder to get mad at them and then blame them for things that they're obviously responsible for. Biden has plenty of critics, and while numerous Trump-endorsed candidates condemned Biden for not backing Pelosi from the get-go, other China hawks running for Senate stayed silent. A spokeswoman for Mehmet Oz, the Republican Senate nominee in Pennsylvania, declined to comment. Ohio Republican J.D. Vance, meanwhile, did not return RCP's request for comment. James Carafano, a foreign policy scholar at the Conservative Heritage Foundation, doesn't make much of the daylight between Trump and Trump endorsed candidates like Walker. Conservatives are generally realists, which means we believe in the national interest and then have debates over the best way to express that. Conservatives have never been lockstep on foreign policy, he told RCP. I think that's fine. It's healthy. So basically, Nancy shouldn't go, but now that she said she is going, she has to go because we can't respond to the threats of the Chinese Communist Party. Joe Biden didn't want her to go because the military was worried about her going. But now that she's going, it's a good thing. And there's no drama whatsoever with the Chinese, according to John Kirby. In fact, the media is only creating the drama themselves by asking questions. 
And the very respectable New York Times published this op-ed by Thomas Friedman yesterday. Why Pelosi's visit to Taiwan is utterly reckless. So this is the liberal intelligentsia and one of their superstars, Thomas Friedman, saying that Pelosi's trip to Taiwan is utterly reckless. But there's actually some really interesting stuff in this little op-ed. I have a lot of respect for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. I mean, who doesn't? But if she does go ahead with a visit to Taiwan this week against President Biden's wishes, she will be doing something that is utterly reckless, dangerous and irresponsible. Nothing good will come of it. Taiwan will not be more secure or more prosperous as a result of this purely symbolic visit. And a lot of bad things could happen. These include a Chinese military response that could result in the U.S. being plunged into indirect conflicts with a nuclear armed Russia and a nuclear armed China at the same time. So there it is. There's your World War Three scare tactic. And Thomas Friedman is not alone in doing this. This was the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Gutierrez, yesterday. The clouds that parted following the end of the Cold War are gathering once more. We have been extraordinarily lucky so far, but luck is not a strategy, nor is it a shield from geopolitical tensions boiling over into nuclear conflict. Today, humanity is just one misunderstanding, one miscalculation away from nuclear annihilation. We are one misunderstanding, one miscalculation away from nuclear annihilation. And that's basically the plot of Dr. Strangelove. But at least New York City is prepared. They had that PSA telling everybody in case of a nuclear disaster, go inside, stay inside and watch media. Those are the instructions. So they've got it under control. And remember, the adults are back in the room. Therefore, we're not going to have any sort of misunderstanding or miscalculation. We've got a fake president at the switch, and he has Kamala Harris backing him up. So don't worry. All good. You know where inside is. You can go there. You can stay there and you can watch TV. I have full faith in all of you to get through this just fine. You have the instructions. You know what's going to trigger that plan being implemented, right? Nuclear bomb goes off somewhere in your vicinity. Go inside, turn on MSNBC and wait till Joy Reid comes on with instructions. Back to Thomas Friedman. And if you think our European allies who are facing an existential war with Russia over Ukraine will join us if there is U.S. conflict with China over Taiwan, triggered by this unnecessary visit, you are badly misreading the world. And you can take Thomas Friedman's word for it. No one badly misreads the world more than Thomas Friedman and the rest of the editorial staff of the New York Times. And make sure you remember all of Europe, all our European allies, they are locked in an existential war between Russia and Ukraine. Somehow that's going to destroy France and England. They're all on one team behind the great comedic actor who is now Winston Churchill. 
Now, he may be right that Europe will be totally unable to involve themselves in anything having to do with China and Taiwan, but that's only because their societies and economies are being utterly decimated based on their own mistakes and miscalculations about the Russia and Ukraine situation. Let's start with the indirect conflict with Russia and how Pelosi's visit to Taiwan now looms over it. There are moments in international relations when you need to keep your eyes on the prize. Today, that prize is crystal clear. We must ensure that Ukraine is able, at a minimum, to blunt and at a maximum reverse Vladimir Putin's unprovoked invasion which, if it succeeds, will pose a direct threat to the stability of the whole European Union. And of course, he means the government of the European Union, and that government shouldn't exist. It should all just splinter into sovereign nations. But it's amazing how many of the slogans he continues to repeat. They're going to reverse Vladimir Putin's unprovoked invasion. All of it is a lie. To help create the greatest possibility of Ukraine reversing Putin's invasion, Biden and his national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, held a series of very tough meetings with China's leadership, imploring Beijing not to enter the Ukraine conflict by providing military assistance to Russia. And particularly now when Putin's arsenal has been diminished by five months of grinding war. Biden, according to a senior U.S. official, personally told President Xi Jinping that if China entered the war in Ukraine on Russia's side, Beijing would be risking access to its most important export markets, the United States and the European Union. China is one of the best countries in the world at manufacturing drones, which are precisely what Putin's troops need most right now. But let's focus back in on that threat for a second. That's basically what they told Russia. Russia would be cut off from the rest of the world. They would be isolated. They would have no access to the markets. They would even be taken off the SWIFT system. And what did Russia do? They said, hey, go ahead, try it. We've got the BRICS system all ready to go. And in the past five months, European economies and the United States economy have all been hurt while Russia has been more or less just fine. By all indications, U.S. officials tell me China has responded by not providing military aid to Putin at a time when the U.S. and NATO have been giving Ukraine intelligence support and a significant number of advanced weapons that have done serious damage to the military of Russia, China's ostensible ally. Given all of that, why in the world would the Speaker of the House choose to visit Taiwan and deliberately provoke China now, becoming the most senior U.S. official to visit Taiwan since Newt Gingrich in 1997, when China was far weaker economically and militarily. The timing could not be worse. Dear reader, the Ukraine war is not over, and privately U.S. officials are a lot more concerned about Ukraine's leadership than they are letting on. There is deep mistrust between the White House and President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine, considerably more than has been reported. What? That's crazy. Is he saying that everything with the comedic actor isn't going that well? What could that possibly mean? He and his wife just did a big photo shoot for Vogue 
last week. The theme of the photo shoot was war, but make it fashion. How could anything be going wrong? They were just promised another $550 million yesterday. The administration basically gives the comedic actor money anytime he asks for it. How can their relationship be frayed? And if that relationship is fraying, why do we just keep giving them money? And there is funny business going on in Kiev or Kiev. On July 17th, Zelensky fired his country's prosecutor general and the leader of its domestic intelligence agency, the most significant shakeup in his government since the Russian invasion in February. It would be the equivalent of Biden firing Merrick Garland and Bill Burns on the same day. But I still have not seen any reporting that convincingly explains what that was all about. It is as if we don't want to look too closely under the hood in Kiev for fear of what corruption or antics we might see when we have invested so much there. More on the dangers of that another day. Hey, Tom, why don't you give us more on the dangers of that right now? In fact, why didn't you give us more on the dangers of that six months ago? All of these people just cheerleading for the comedic actor for month after month after month. And now the relationship is fraying. Now there might be corruption or antics in Kiev of all places. Meanwhile, senior U.S. officials still believe that Putin is quite prepared to consider using a small nuclear weapon against Ukraine if he sees his army facing certain defeat. Well, good news. There is absolutely no chance of Putin's army ever facing certain defeat in Ukraine. That is complete bizarro world, false reality nonsense. Never at any point has Ukraine even posed a threat to Vladimir Putin. Ukraine's military is currently destroying other parts of Ukraine's military. They have neo-Nazis in their military. The financial aid we're sending is getting laundered. The weapons we're sending are disappearing. And now there is at least some level of proof that what Thomas Friedman just mentioned a minute ago, the U.S. assisting the Ukrainians with intelligence has actually moved into the U.S. assisting the Ukrainians with targeting. And this is something that we've talked about sporadically over the last couple of months. The adults are back in the room. Shouldn't this all be an organized process with clear communications to the public about our goals and what we hope to achieve and then consistent movement toward those goals with actions that suggest those are the real goals and we are moving toward them? Well, hey, I don't know. I'm not one of the adults in the room. In short, this Ukraine war is so not over, so not stable, so not without dangerous surprises that can pop out on any given day. And you might think that I am reading it that way for added drama. I'm not. He literally wrote so three times in capital letters in the New York Times. The old gray lady, the very serious paper of record. Yet in the middle of all this, we are going to risk a conflict with China over Taiwan, provoked by an arbitrary and frivolous visit by the Speaker of the House. 
It is geopolitics 101 that you don't court a two front war with the other two superpowers at the same time. Wow, Tom, thank goodness you took geopolitics 101. Now let's turn to the potential for an indirect conflict with China and how Pelosi's visit could trigger it. According to Chinese news reports, she told Biden on their phone call last week, alluding to U.S. involvement in Taiwan's affairs, such as a possible Pelosi visit, whoever plays with fire will get burnt. Biden's national security team made clear to Pelosi, a longtime advocate for human rights in China, why she should not go to Taiwan now. But the president did not call her directly and ask her not to go, apparently worried he would look soft on China leaving an opening for Republicans to attack him before the midterms. And of course, he didn't want that. So he had to kill a terrorist that may have already been dead. It is a measure of our political dysfunction that a Democratic president cannot deter a Democratic House speaker from engaging in a diplomatic maneuver that his entire national security team, from the CIA director to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, deemed unwise. To be sure, there is an argument that Biden should just call Xi's bluff, back Pelosi to the hilt, and tell Xi that if he threatens Taiwan in any way, it's China that will get burnt. That might work. It might even feel good for a day. It also might start World War III. In my view, Taiwan should have just asked Pelosi not to come at this time. I so admire Taiwan and the economy and democracy that it has built since the end of World War II. Now, he wrote that so in just normal lowercase letters. So apparently he doesn't really mean it that much. I so admire Taiwan and the economy and democracy that has built since the end of World War II. That would have been so much better. So much better. His lowercase letters make it sound like he's just being sarcastic. I have visited Taiwan numerous times over the last 30 years and have personally witnessed how much has changed in Taiwan in that time. So much. <laughs> I can't believe this is an adult man writing this. But there is one thing that has not changed for Taiwan. It's geography. <laughs> yeah, Tom, it's pretty hard to change your geography. Are you going to be transgeographic? Is that what it's going to be? Hey, bro, we can still tell you're a tiny island. Taiwan is still a tiny island now with 23 million people, roughly 100 miles off the coast of a giant mainland China with 1.4 billion people who claim Taiwan as part of the Chinese motherland. Places that forget their geography get in trouble. Yeah, they might just forget to tuck Taiwan when they go out in public one day. Or, you know, when they wear loose-fitting white pants and dance on the Ellen show. Do not mistake this for pacifism on my part. I believe it is a vital U.S. national interest to defend Taiwan's democracy in the event of an unprovoked Chinese invasion. But if we are going to get into a conflict with Beijing, at least let it be on our timing and our issues. Our issues are China's increasingly aggressive behavior on a wide range of fronts, from cyber intrusions to intellectual property theft to military maneuvers in the South China Sea. And by the way, I might as well say this, just speculation, but I have a feeling that we're going to begin to hear about cyber attacks that were initiated by the Chinese in response to this Pelosi trip. And if we do, we can basically guarantee that they will be 
data breaches of organizations that themselves have a bit more going on behind the scenes. That said, this is not the time for poking at China, especially considering what a sensitive time it is in Chinese politics. She is on the eve of locking in an indefinite extension of his role as China's leader at the 20th Communist Party Congress, expected to be this fall. The Chinese Communist Party has always made clear that reunification of Taiwan and mainland China is its historical task. And since coming to power in 2012, she has steadily and recklessly underscored his commitment to that task with aggressive military maneuvers around Taiwan. By visiting, Pelosi will actually give Xi an opportunity to divert attention from his own failures, a whack-a-mole strategy of trying to shut down the spread of COVID-19 by using lockdowns of China's major cities, a huge real estate bubble that is now deflating and threatening a banking crisis, and an immense mountain of government debt resulting from Xi's unrestrained support for state-owned industries. Now, wait a second. These are all she's failures. These failures sound a little familiar. A whack-a-mole strategy of using lockdown to curb the spread of COVID-19. Oh, yeah. Democratic governors did that. A huge real estate bubble that is now deflating. Yep, we have that here. We have massive investment firms buying up single family homes all around the country, inflating the price of homes, and then they can stop and home values will plummet. And then once they do, ah, the big investment firms can swoop right back in and start buying them up on the cheap. Threatening a banking crisis? Yeah, we've got that. And immense government debt resulting from unrestrained support for state-owned industries? That is what the global agenda in America is actually doing. We hear about public-private partnerships all the time. We know the government is directing industries and essentially bribing them to go along with global agenda priorities. We know about the ESG scores. We know our corporations in America respond to that stuff. All of that is the close connection between the corporation and the state. So for Xi in communist China, these are failures for Joe Biden and Democrat governors in communist America. These are part of our transition to the Great Reset, which is going to save everybody and especially the planet from the sun. I seriously doubt that Taiwan's current leadership and its heart of hearts wants this Pelosi visit now. Anyone who has followed the cautious behavior of President Tsai Ing-wen of Taiwan's pro-independence-leaning Democratic Progressive Party since her election in 2016 has to be impressed by her consistent efforts to defend Taiwan's independence while not giving China an easy excuse for military action against Taiwan. Alas, I fear that the growing consensus in Xi's China is that the Taiwan question can only be resolved militarily, but China wants to do it on its own schedule. Our goal should be to deter China from such a military endeavor on our schedule, capitals, which is forever. <laughs> Man, Thomas Friedman, so clever. Our schedule is forever. But the best way to do that is to arm Taiwan into what military analysts call a porcupine, bristling with so many missiles that China would never want to lay hands on it, 
while saying and doing as little as possible to provoke China into thinking that it must, all capitals, lay hands on it now. Pursuing anything else than that balanced approach would be an awful mistake with vast and unpredictable consequences. So you got that? The very responsible people who have promoted arming Ukraine, sending billions and billions and billions of dollars, sending military equipment, helping out with intelligence, making sure that Russia would lose in Ukraine, are now admitting that there might be a problem in Ukraine with the comedic actor and with corruption and other antics. And so what we should do in Taiwan is send billions and billions of dollars and military equipment like no one has ever seen, turn the entire island into a missile porcupine and then pray for the best. Because anything other than that will have vast and unpredictable consequences. Well, we've already got something other than that because Nancy Pelosi went. So now we have just the prelude for World War Three, and Thomas Friedman is more than happy to help the military industrial complex siphon American taxpayer dollars to their friends. And since absolutely no one in the entire world has any idea why Nancy Pelosi is going there, let's hear from Nancy Pelosi herself. This was her op-ed from today in the Washington Post. Why I'm leading a congressional delegation to Taiwan. Some 43 years ago, the United States Congress overwhelmingly passed and President Jimmy Carter signed into law the Taiwan Relations Act, one of the most important pillars of U.S. foreign policy in the Asia Pacific. The Taiwan Relations Act set out America's commitment to a democratic Taiwan, providing the framework for an economic and diplomatic relationship that would quickly flourish into a key partnership. It fostered a deep friendship rooted in shared interests and values, self-determination and self-government, democracy and freedom, human dignity and human rights. And it made a solemn vow by the United States to support the defense of Taiwan, quote, to consider any effort to determine the future of Taiwan by other than peaceful means, a threat to the peace and security of the Western Pacific area and of grave concern to the United States. Today, America must remember that vow. We must stand by Taiwan, which is an island of resilience. Taiwan is a leader in governance, currently in addressing the COVID-19 pandemic and championing environmental conservation and climate action. It is a leader in peace, security, and economic dynamism with an entrepreneurial spirit, culture of innovation, and technological prowess that are envies of the world. So she, in not so many words, just said, Taiwan is a key to the global communist agenda. They are on board with the agenda, the COVID-19 pandemic, environmental conservation and climate action. Yet disturbingly, this vibrant, robust democracy named one of the freest in the world by Freedom House and proudly led by a woman, President Tsai Ing-wen, is under threat. In recent years, Beijing has dramatically intensified tensions with Taiwan. The People's Republic of China has ramped up patrols of bombers, fighter jets and surveillance aircraft near and even over Taiwan's air defense zone, 
leading the U.S. Defense Department to conclude that China's army is, quote, likely preparing for a contingency to unify Taiwan with the PRC by force. The PRC has also taken the fight into cyberspace, launching scores of attacks on Taiwan government agencies each day. At the same time, Beijing is squeezing Taiwan economically, pressuring global corporations to cut ties with the island, intimidating countries that cooperate with Taiwan, and clamping down on tourism from the PRC. Ah, so Taiwan's economic interests are being harmed by China, but the key is that what they're doing ends up pressuring global corporations to cut ties with Taiwan, kind of like how American sanctions on Russia and the business with their currency manifested itself in the world as global corporations cutting ties with Russia, as Russia seems to be cutting ties with the global agenda. In the face of the Chinese Communist Party's accelerating aggression, our congressional delegation's visit should be seen as an unequivocal statement that America stands with Taiwan, our democratic partner, as it defends itself and its freedom, just like Ukraine. Our visit, one of several congressional delegations to the island, in no way contradicts the long-standing one-China policy guided by the Taiwan Relations Act of 1979 the U.S.-China Joint Communiques, and the Six Assurances. The United States continues to oppose unilateral efforts to change the status quo. Our visit is part of our broader trip to the Pacific, including Singapore, Malaysia, South Korea, and Japan, focused on mutual security, economic partnership, and democratic governance. We must save our democracy. Our discussions with our Taiwanese partners We'll focus on reaffirming our support for the island and promoting our shared interests, including advancing a free and open Indo-Pacific region. America's solidarity with Taiwan is more important today than ever, not only to the 23 million people of the island, but also to millions of others oppressed and menaced by the PRC. And it's kind of incredible that none of these politicians were speaking up over the last few years about concentration camps in China. That apparently was no big deal. 30 years ago, I traveled in a bipartisan congressional delegation to China, where in Tiananmen Square, we unfurled a black and white banner that read to those who died for democracy in China. Uniformed police pursued us as we left the square. Since then, Beijing's abysmal human rights record and disregard for the rule of law continue as President Xi Jinping tightens his grip on power. The CCP's brutal crackdowns against Hong Kong's political freedoms and human rights, even arresting Catholic Cardinal Joseph Zen, cast the promises of one country, two systems into the dustbin. In Tibet, the CCP has long led a campaign to erase the Tibetan people's language, culture, religion, and identity, which is strange because that's exactly what Ukraine was just doing to ethnic Russians in the Donbass but it wasn't a problem there. In Xinjiang, Beijing is perpetrating genocide against Muslim Uyghurs and other minorities. Oh, there it is. And throughout the mainland, the CCP continues to target and arrest activists, religious freedom leaders, and others who dare to defy the regime. We cannot stand by as the CCP proceeds to threaten Taiwan and democracy itself. 
Indeed, we take this trip at a time when the world faces a choice between autocracy and democracy. As Russia wages its premeditated illegal war against Ukraine, killing thousands of innocents, even children, it is essential that America and our allies make clear that we never give in to autocrats. When I led a congressional delegation to Kyiv in April, the highest level U.S. visit to the besieged nation, I conveyed to President Volodymyr Zelensky that we admired his people's defense of democracy for Ukraine and for democracy worldwide. But wait a second. Why is Nancy Pelosi bragging about the fact that she represents the highest level U.S. visit to Ukraine during this time? Why is she going to lengths to point out that Biden and Kamala Harris didn't bother going? Isn't that strange? Nancy Pelosi is essentially leading U.S. foreign policy around the world. Is that what we're meant to understand here? It really is pretty astounding how little Joe Biden and Kamala Harris actually have to do with world affairs. Joe Biden's speech and all the communications from his administration seem like they have no idea what's going on anywhere ever, including just last night with the supposed killing of Ayman al-Zwahiri. In a very real way, it seems like the fake administration just does not actually have access to intelligence. And Pelosi wraps up, By traveling to Taiwan, we honor our commitment to democracy, reaffirming, that the freedoms of Taiwan and all democracies must be respected. So our democracy always, every time they say that, every time they brag about a country being a democratic country, we must defend democracy. That is always their global governance in their strongholds that they are trying to preserve. That is how that should be taken every time it comes out of the mouths of anyone involved with the global communist agenda. And Nancy Pelosi certainly is that. So we've gotten the establishment opinions. We get the view from the New York Times and one of their most serious op-ed writers, Thomas Friedman. We get the two sides of the argument from Real Clear Politics. And then we get the story from Nancy Pelosi herself. Let's get some counter-narrative context. This is Jack Posobiec this morning on War Room. Do you think she's tied to the grift? Do you think there's any geostrategic well, I don't advantage? Think I know. Or do you think the Speaker of the House going and having uh, Beijing just yammer on about it but not do anything? You know, they scramble some fighters, they scramble the SU-35s, but nothing comes of it. Is that a but victory Steve, you, for uh, Nancy? The war, the signal not noise here, the war room understands what the CCP is doing. This is They are doing wag the Pelosi right now. Because they don't want their, the Lao Beijing looking at their banking crisis, the Evergrande crisis, which is bigger than the Lehman Brothers collapse. They can't get money out of Ten their times. banks. They're, they're running tanks all up and down their streets. But they're going to say, wait, don't worry Jack. about that. Go look at Nancy Pelosi. Go look Jack. at the streets you know, the CC, that I've gone the through CCP when I was in the says, Navy. That's what this is about. Lao, ba Lao Beijing thinks it's their savings account. The CCP said, no, it's been redefined as an investment product. <laughs> it's all gone. It it's out. all gone. It's, it's all gone. It's not. I'm telling you, the revolution is going to come from in front of this. It's not Tiananmen Square. The tanks are in front of the Bank of China branch in Henan. That's where the revolution is going to start. Lao Beijing's not going to take it anymore. You wait. 
That's why it's hypernationalism well, right now. Well, here's what people need to understand. Here's what yep. people understand. Because yep. the, the theme song of the war room is take down the CCP. But the next question then becomes, if the CCP is taken down, what's next? Well, you already have the previous government of China that's sitting right there in Taipei called the Republic of China. Remember, Taiwan has never dropped their claim to be the legitimate government of China, the Republic. This was the remainder of the Chinese Civil War, 1949. Chairman Mao goes to Tiananmen Square, declares uh, the People's Republic. No, it's done. When the CCP falls, the Republic of China will be restored in Beijing as the legitimate government of China. People need to understand that. The Chinese Lao Beijing can govern themselves. Thank you. They do fine throughout the rest of the world. They can do themselves. This this is. Wait. So it's possible that the CCP itself could be under threat. The Chinese Communist Party itself. Could it be that globalists and those supporting the global agenda might be removed from the Taiwan and China picture? Could that be what's going on? Could Nancy be going because of something to do with that? No, no, no. It's probably just she's going to to save our democracy, except that's what save our democracy to her actually means. Are we going to be told that by our media? Of course not. Just like we weren't told any of that about Ukraine. And this might explain part of why this is from the National Pulse today. Two days in a row for the National Pulse, two days in a row for Natalie Winters, always a good outlet. CNN, CNBC, AP met with Chinese Communist Party propagandists in July. Major U.S. news outlets, including CNN, CNBC and the Associated Press, recently met with Chinese Communist Party propagandists flagged by the U.S. government for seeking to malignly influence U.S. politics the National Pulse can reveal. Bureau chiefs for the Associated Press, CNN and CNBC took a meeting with the Chinese People's Association for Friendship with Foreign Countries, which is part of China's billion dollar United Front effort. This is the CPA FFC. The United Front aims to co-opt and neutralize sources of potential opposition to the policies and authority of its ruling Chinese Communist Party and influence foreign governments to take actions or adopt positions supportive of Beijing's preferred policies, according to the Federal U.S.-China Security and Economic Review Commission, U.S. government initiative from 2018. United Front groups such as the China United States Exchange Foundation, CUSEF, have used tactics including free trips to China to garner favorable coverage from mainstream media outlets according to Foreign Agent Registration Act filings. The CPA FFC has been dubbed the public face of the United Front Work Department and, quote, avowedly an arm of the party state. In addition to being flagged by the U.S. State Department for its campaigns to, quote, directly and malignly influence, end quote, American officials and business leaders. Journalists met with the president, Lin Songtian, at the group's Beijing headquarters on July 26, 2022. As a press release from the group's Chinese language website reveals, the meeting, quote, enhanced mutual understanding and friendship. 
The CPA FFC president appeared to instruct the media representatives to portray China as an ally, as opposed to a major competitor, to avoid misjudgment and misleading public opinion. In today's era of political multipolarization, economic globalization, and democratization of international relations, the United States still views China from the outdated perspective of you lose, we win, and either friend or enemy is an enemy. Positioning China as a major competitor will inevitably lead to strategic misunderstandings, misjudgment, and misleading public opinion. So it will be good to remember as the situation evolves that the mainstream media sources are themselves influenced by the Chinese Communist Party and are tasked with leading public opinion in a way that won't have anyone upset with the CCP. I'm sure we'll get a very even handed, fair and balanced view of what is going on in Taiwan as this situation continues to evolve. And now changing subjects without a segue, I was not able to get to this story last week, but I want to put it on your radar. This is from the Associated Press, the people who are about to bring you Chinese propaganda. New USPS election division will oversee mail-in ballots. Isn't that great? A new division in the United States Postal Service. The United States Postal Service is creating a division to handle election mail issues as part of an effort to ensure swift and secure delivery of ballots for the 2022 midterm election, officials said Wednesday. Hey, guys, just a pause. You know what would help the situation the most in regards to mail-in ballots and them getting there safely and securely? Rather than propping up brand new federal agencies under the government that is sitting illegitimately as the result of an election decided by fraud, much of it having to do with the mail. How about just stop with the mail-in ballots? The idea behind the creation of the election and government mail services is to have a permanent division dedicated to dealing with election matters instead of handling issues one at a time, as in the past. Adrian Marshall, executive director of the division, said Wednesday that the services will oversee election mail strike teams in every local and district community to address any problems that might arise. We are fully committed to the secure and timely delivery of the nation's election mail, she said. Oh, well, that solves everything. The Postal Service was dogged by backlogs and questions ahead of the 2020 presidential election in which more than 135 million ballots were delivered to and from voters. You got that? 135 million ballots. How many total votes were there? In the 2020 election, about 157 million ish, we are told, right? That is what the number is. That's what's been reported. There is absolutely no way there are 156 or 157 real legal American votes in the 2020 election, but total votes, 156, 157 million. So are we to suspect that only 22 million people voted in person in the 2020 election? Well, of course not. There were already over 35 million people who voted in person 
in the early voting period in 2020. And it's actually not as easy as you might think to get the total number of in-person versus mail-in voters. They combine mail-in with early voting into a category they call non-traditional voting. But even with just the early numbers, that 35 million figure, that means that at the bare minimum, at least 10 million mail-in ballots that were sent out did not end up in the final tally. Where did all those 10 million ballots go? How many mail-in ballots are getting sent out with no one on the other end to collect them? Where do all those ballots go? How did we get a full 20% jump in total voter turnout in the 2020 election for a guy that campaigned from his basement? Despite the pandemic... The Postal Service said it delivered 97.9% of ballots from voters to election officials within three days, and 99.89% of ballots were delivered within seven days in the 2020 election. Oh, that's good. So almost all of the ballots showed up where they were supposed to within a week. Thank goodness no one had to drive down the street to vote. The Postal Service is sending guidance letters to election officials in each state and territory this week. Oh, they'll get to learn all about the new processes, the new ways that this new government agency is going to help make sure that the 2022 election is even the most saferest and most secure-erist election of all time. The 2020 election was already the most safe and secure election in history. And what are they going to do? They're going to make it better. How are they going to make it better? Well, first, they're going to propose H.R. 1, a whole sweeping reform to the way the nation votes. You want universal mail-in ballots for everyone? Perfect. Ballot harvesting? Yes. No voter ID? Never. Voter ID is racist. And you just go on down the line. But they can't pass that. So what does Joe Biden do? Joe Biden signs an executive order in the springtime of 2021. He needed to address it immediately, right out of the gate. Signs an executive order directing all federal agencies to devote some level of resources to figuring out how to make voting more accessible to everyone. And in doing that, they basically took all the jobs that Mark Zuckerberg paid for with his half a billion dollars for 2020, and they shifted all of that onto the American taxpayer. And now they're having the American government do the dirty work so Mark Zuckerberg doesn't have to because we got that Zuckerberg money out of the election. Don't you remember how many Republicans took victory laps on that? But back to the very astute Associated Press. Postal workers are already hard at work delivering ballots this year. Oh, they're like Santa Claus and his elves and his tiny reindeer. So far, nearly 40 million ballots have been mailed to and from voters during primary elections, officials said. And they've all been handled perfectly. Don't you worry. But they'll be handled even more perfectly once we get this new federal agency up and running. Now, like I said, there are primaries all over the place today, and there are problems being reported just about everywhere. Sharpie problems going on again. Sharpie gate 
2.0. We know from the 2020 election that Sharpies can produce a bleed through effect, which causes the machines to be unable to read the ballot. They get sent to adjudication and then who knows what happens. The ballots are only supposed to be marked with blue or black ballpoint pen and the county recorder, Stephen Richer, is the one who's disseminating the Sharpies. There are reports of printers not working. People are showing up to be told that they've already voted. People are receiving text messages telling them that their mail-in ballot has been received even as they're on their way to go vote in person. And of course, we're being told that all of these are simple, isolated human errors. There is nothing wrong with anything, certainly nothing wrong with the machines. And we'll give you the results at some point within the next few days. And you're all going to accept them because it doesn't matter how poorly we run elections. They are always the safest and most secure. So eyes up everyone. There's going to be a lot going on. We are within a hundred days until the midterms and the crazy is just beginning. I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!